Welcome to Abstract, colon, the future of science. I'm your host, Jeremy Ullman, and today, as always, we are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research. We recorded in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're discussing the future of science. Enjoy the show. It's not every day I have the pleasure of picking the brain of an evolutionary biologist. But today is one of those days, and I am honestly overjoyed to have you, the listener, and our awesome guest joining me on Abstract. He's the one, the only, Eamon Callison. Eamon, welcome to the show. How's it going? Oh, it's going good, Jeremy. I'm really excited to be here. (laughs) Thank you for coming back. It's been a good long while since our first chat, and I am roaring to get into things again. So tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, well, uh, as you said, my name's Eamon. I am a... PhD candidate in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. I'm originally from Denver, Colorado, the Mile High City, which may factor into some of my research later on and kind of come back to this discussion. I completed my bachelor's degree in biology and philosophy of science at WashU in St. Louis, and then I followed that with my MPhil in evolutionary studies at the University of Cambridge. My dissertation work is mostly focused on understanding the form and the function of the human chest, which is to say, I'm really interested in how humans have evolved to breathe during sustained endurance activities like running and how selection has affected how we use our ribs to inhale and exhale large amounts of air. And then to uh, answer these questions, I've measured thoracic motion in humans and dogs and in goats. I've examined lots and lots and lots of bones at different museums. I've measured human fossils and I've uh, done a fair amount of work in the Peruvian Andes, which is an elevation of about 14,000 feet. When not in the lab, I really like rowing, running along the Charles River, and uh, snowboarding down whatever mountain I can find. <laughs> wow. So you do a lot of things that involve a lot of thoracic motion. Yeah, I love, I love, I love chess. I mean, they're just fascinating <laughs> structures when you think about it. It's kind of a, a weird thing. Like, most people don't really think about breathing. So actually, if you wouldn't mind joining me in a quick experiment along with the audience, let's sure. go ahead and take like a really big breath. Okay. And just, <gasps> and hold it. And all the way out. Yeah, did you feel that motion in your chest? Definitely. A huge expansion. Yeah, that's what I'm going to be talking about today. (laughs) Okay, so something I've experienced not only just now, but also I think repeatedly throughout my entire life since birth. Lots and lots of times throughout your entire life. Like we're talking on the order of millions of times throughout like an average lifespan. (laughs) <laughs> Whoa. That's actually weird to quantify it, though. It, it makes the, the finite aspect of life a little bit more real when you, yeah. when, when you put a number on it in the millions, <laughs> at least giving an order of magnitude. I actually do think it's, it's, it's crazy that we spend nine months in gestation and we don't <laughs> use our lungs at all. We don't breathe. We just have nutrients coming in and out through our umbilical cord. And yeah. then we take our first breath upon birthing and it's just breathing until the end. Oh, it's crazy. It actually ends up like, uh, so it's really important. It actually closes a hole in your heart, which uh, very important to close. Sometimes it doesn't and you have to go in and surgically repair it. And then uh, there's also an additional little vessel that kind of bypasses the lungs. So all your oxygen is coming from mom or from the pregnant person into into the fetus. And then as soon as you are no longer attached to mom, you take a big breath and we're on our way. (laughs) That's crazy. So you said we're actually bypassing the lungs entirely. Yes. Yeah. Because I mean, you're basically underwater, so you can't breathe. <laughs> you can't breathe underwater. You don't want to inhale a lot of fluid. There's no air to breathe. The lungs aren't really doing anything. So you just bypass it. You mix deoxygenated blood from uh, the fetus with oxygenated blood from mom, and that is how you keep the fetus alive. So I guess we were like kind of 
we're kind of amphibious in that sense. At least <laughs> for the first, we're like amphibious over time, not like consistently back and forth. We start in the water and then we, we exit. Kind of like a microcosm of our evolution. <laughs> Interesting. Yes, going from water to land. I've actually got a couple of friends who study that, and uh, they'd be overjoyed to hear this conversation. But uh, very different from what I'm doing. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Yep. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely talk about the, the adult <laughs> thoracic cage. I assume that that's what you're dealing with mainly. You, you already mentioned that you deal with bones, so like I guess fo- there's a lot of fossil stuff going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, given that you are an evolutionary biologist, we're talking about the thoracic cage over time. Yes, definitely. So clearly we have evolved. Is our thoracic cage still evolving? Is it still evolving? That's a really interesting question. So it sort of goes to this whole broader question, are humans still evolving? Which the answer is definitely yes. I mean, a species never stops evolving. So there's this notion that, okay, you reach this pinnacle, you've evolved for a certain environment, or you're changing your environment and relying only on culture. So therefore, humans are done. Mm -hmm. Not true. So... I guess this will be a little bit of a tangent, then I'll bring it back to chess. But uh, when you think about evolution, it's really a matter of natural selection. So we like to think of things in terms of evolution by natural selection, because there are different theories of evolution. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking at evolution, you're dealing with heritability. So individuals tend to look like their offspring and offspring tend to look like their parents. Right. You're talking about a little bit of variation. So uh, no doubt, uh, if you, I have two siblings. They're both somewhat similar to me, but very different. So we vary in different ways. So you're going to have uh, varying amounts of variation in a population. Mm-hmm. And then finally, you're going to have what we call competition. So different individuals will reprodu- reproduce more or less and have different numbers of offspring. And just with those three fundamental aspects of, I guess, being, you automatically get evolution by natural selection. It just arises from those. So that's kind of like the like tripartite summary of Darwin's theory. That's Darwin's theory. It's really okay. kind of an elegant, very simple little thing that has, uh, we, we call it like a paradigm shift. It's just yeah. changed the way we view the world. And once you, once you understand evolution, you kind of think about everything in terms of evolution. It affects proteins. It affects different aspects of culture. It affects different aspects of biology because it's actually a really elegant way of understanding the world around us. What was the way of understanding the world around us before this theory, dare I ask? <laughs> Stretching our necks and becoming uh, becoming a little bit longer if you're reaching for those leaves, like uh, uh-huh. Lamarackian evolution. Okay. <laughs> kind of interesting theories. And they all kind of add up to, I mean, people were on the right track, but it was really Darwin who kind of synthesized that and came up with this great idea. And then a couple of years later, you have... Uh, Gregor Mendel, you've got Watson and Crick discovering DNA, and then you've got uh, Ernst Marr kind of bringing those all together and with the new modern synthesis that things are evolving and genes are changing and that affects phenotype, and that's where we are today, kind of. It's crazy how recently all of that happened, too. I, oh, I it's think, wonderful. Uh, Darwin was on the HMS Beagle in like the 1800s. Mm-hmm. So this is like extremely recently on evolutionary timescales. So oh. we're, we're really just barely... We, we basically just got to know about our evolution very yes, recently. Yes, very recently in, uh, I guess, the in human history. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, and maybe we'll touch on this a little bit later, but humans are actually a very recent species. Like when you look at evolutionary timescales, humans are, we're, we're, we're children. Like we're, we're tiny. We're, we're, very, we're very young. We've only been around for like 285,000 years, give or take couple of thousand years. That makes sense. People always tell me that I look quite young. Maybe it's because maybe it's I'm part of a young species. 
Yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, people used to say that about me, and then I went to grad school, and now it's like, you look so old. <laughs> Does this phenotype make me look fat? That's <laughs> but, great. Uh, anyway, bringing it all the way back to your question, because I went on a little bit of a tangent there. All good fun. Are human chests still evolving? Well, it really depends on your environment. So the human chest is a really cool part of the body. And some of the work that I've done is actually looked at, at chests at high altitude. So in that way, yeah, the chest is still under selection. I mean, that's about, you know, 9,000 years. So very, re very recent since people have started really arriving at those, those high altitude mm -hmm. parts of the world. And it's had effects on the chest. So is it evolving in you or me sitting here? At, well, I'm at sea level right now in Boston. Probably not. I mean, it's not going to change. Still going to be evolving. Evolution is still happening. Do you think that our lungs will evolve based on the increase in pollution that we live with in major cities? Is, is that enough of a factor? That's a really interesting question. Like, I mean, I, I, I honestly have no idea. <laughs> would be very cool. I mean, that's, that's more of a question of like immune system or... Uh -huh. So like the structure of the lung, I would probably say no, but I mean, also it would take a lot of pollution. <laughs> Sure. But that's a, that's an interesting question. A little bit no beyond problem. my wheelhouse, so we can table that for another time. No problem. <laughs> so so since we are still evolving, maybe it's hard to see, but humans for sure as a whole evolving. The chest has evolved over time. Yes. If I'm thinking about our last common ancestor, the chimpanzees, we're pretty at least on the surface we look pretty different. I know mm -hmm. we think relatively differently. There are similarities for sure, but could you maybe explain to me how it is that we've changed so much? from that most recent ancestor? Definitely, that's a really great question. So um, just to put this in context for anybody who's listening, we generally argue that, the, that humans separated from chimpanzees, our last common ancestor was about seven million years ago. So six to nine million is like the, the given date. Mm -hmm. And since then you have chimpanzees in one environment and then what eventually becomes modern humans, us, in different environments. And that leads to a lot of, well, everything changes. So brains change, limbs change, the chest changes, the pelvis changes. And I think you've had a conversation with uh, one of my colleagues about this a couple of, a couple of months ago, which we definitely have. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a little bit of a plug on that because Marielle is awesome. Amazing researcher. Yes. Marielle Young. Excellent episode. Go check it out. Mm -hmm. Highly recommend it. Like uh, I listened to it and that's why I ended up coming on this. Um, nice. Yeah. So everything starts to change and it's really about changing the environment. And then what we call hominins responding to that. So you have this period of cooling and drying around the globe. And this basically fragments forests, right? So you go from being a very jungly, dense jungle environment, kind of like what chimps are living in today, mm -hmm. for the most part. And that environment starts to change. That jungle contracts. You start getting a little bit more fragmentary forest. And then there's a question of how do you get between these different patches? Because you still want to mm -hmm. eat. And that leads to the evolution of bipedality. And that's really when we're off to, pardon the pun, we're off to the races, so to speak. <laughs> oh my God. I, I have never thought about the <laughs> geological and like climatological aspects of the earth having an effect, or at least creating the need for bipedalism. Oh, big time. It's it's really really kind of amazing. So that is nuts. If you if you if you so let's let's imagine let's go back seven million years and we're we're our last common ancestor. Which I will say I tend to ascribe to the theory that our last common ancestor was chimp-like. That is not saying that we evolved from chimpanzees. Like we're not mm -hmm. going to take away from chimps. They have continued evolving for the last seven million years. Kind of going back to what I was saying about humans. Evolution doesn't just stop. 
Mm -hmm. Selective pressures can be stabilizing, which means they keep things kind of the same. And actually, there are plenty of examples of that in, uh, in different biological organisms of things just being good at their environment. They don't need to change. They don't want to change. Mm-hmm. Chimpanzees are an, probably an example of that. But anyway, okay, we're, gotcha. let's, go, let's go back in time. Seven million years. We're hanging out in a jungle. It's awesome. There's fruit. We're kind of a knuckle-walking, chimp-like thing. So a smaller body than humans. Life is good. And then it starts to get a little bit drier and colder. And suddenly, life is a little bit more challenging. Those of us who are living deep in the jungle, life is still good. It hasn't really changed. Those of us living on the fringe of the jungle, well, that's where things are going to start getting interesting. We're going to start losing that that, that treed environment. It's become a little bit more grassland. There's a patch of trees over there. I'm sitting in a patch of trees here eating fruit. I'm out of fruit. What do I do? Well, I'm going to have to walk all the way over to that other patch. And... Wait, wait, wait. There was no Uber Eats back then? What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, there's no Uber. Like, uh, I can't just call up, like, an antelope or something and just have it, like, ride me over there. As cool antelope as that would be. Antelope for a cantaloupe. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bad joke, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're here. Exactly. <laughs> the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> so there's no Uber Eats. You're not getting cantaloupes. You actually are – you're stuck in a patch of forest, and you see a, a lush forest out in the distance. How do you get there? You got to walk there. And if you're a chimpanzee, walk in there – isn't the most energetically efficient thing. So there's actually been a, oh, I love this paper. There's a great study. There was a grad student at WashU uh, who did this back in the day. And they showed that basically knuckle walking or bipedal walking in chimpanzees isn't that efficient. It's very costly relative to human bipedal walking. Mm-hmm. So when I say knuckle walking, that's like a quadrupedal type of walking. Chimps can go up on their hind limbs, two legs, and walk, but they're just not very good at it. And then humans, we're pretty good at it. So there's so, there's this shift. So we become more efficient. And that's kind of what we're saying here. So when you think about energy, you can put energy into different things. So you're, you're eating food, processing it, turning it into energy, and you can use that energy to grow. You can use that energy to move around. You can use that energy to maintain yourself once you're done growing. So like your immune system or just like keeping up muscle and everything, all your tissue going going all right. Uh, you can you defend can use, your family. You can defend your family. So that sort of goes to like activity. Uh, so that's, that's costly. And then finally, you can use it to reproduce. And the thing is, there's a selection for being good at reproducing. The more you reproduce, the more you pass your genes on. So everybody right. wants to maximize reproduction. Mm-hmm. So... Again, going back to our little, our poor little chimp-like thing sitting in the forest looking just longingly and hungrily out at the other patch of forest that has more food, knows that it has to move there. And if it saves energy getting there, that means that energy that is saved on locomoting to that other patch of forest can be used for reproduction. So the chimp-like thing or uh, competing against maybe an emerging biped, chimp is using a little bit more energy to get to that other patch. Biped's using a little bit less energy, it's able to have more offspring. So what I'm curious about, though, is this emerging biped. Where does mm-hmm. that emerging biped come from? Where, where's the pressure to produce that? I understand you have a chimp who's competing with something that's better than it at, at going to get that cantaloupe from the antelope. But where did that emerging biped come from? That's a great question. So that's actually, um, it's a topic of some debate. There are researchers and paleoanthropologists who have somewhat differing ideas on that. And I won't really chime in and say one is more correct than the other. It's a little bit outside my expertise. But what it is, is you have random variation, right? So it's not necessarily something emerges and it's a great biped. 
it's more like a facultative biped or one individual's slightly better at walking bipedally than other individuals. And then that slight benefit leads to it saving a little bit more energy and has a little bit more offspring. It's offspring a little bit better. Right. And then they pass that on. And then over deep time, that's how you get that change to bipedality. So it's all very, very gradual. It doesn't feel like it should happen in 7 million years. I know it sounds like a lot of time, <laughs> but still, if you're talking about the, the true key being your reproductive power, you might end up being that random, bipedally, like efficient monkey hybrid, but be terrible at reproducing. And then it's, it, it's too bad that you had something that was great, but you couldn't pass it on. Happens all the time. I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's totally correct. There is, a, there is an idea of randomness. Sometimes individuals who are in fact better, they just, you know, you, you, you stumble across a cheetah and boop, you're out. That's a bummer. Happens all the time in biology. It isn't directive. So uh, we, we also like to think of evolution going all the way back to this whole spiel on what is evolution. We think about evolution as directionless. So it's not, there is no plan. Things don't evolve into certain things. Mm -hmm. It's not the survival of the perfect. It's just the survival of the better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so like we're, lot, we're yeah. very lucky. Like, it's kind of amazing when you think about it that it's uh, it's it's these small little changes that lead to some other changes, and then seven million years or so later, you've got human beings chatting on a computer about what it was like to be a chimpanzee-like last common ancestor. Dumb it, luck. It is awesome. I, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's it's starting to maybe make sense why humans are so adaptable. How, like, why how we can live in so many climates if we evolved from those chimp-like beings at the periphery of those forest patches, then we had to adapt to survive. Mm -hmm. And so yes. in a sense, it, it seems like we are adaptable because we had to be previously. Mm -hmm. well, I, I would agree with that, actually. Like, humans are a very plastic species. We're kind of amazing. We do well in a lot of different environments. We, we live in an unusual time where there aren't a lot of ape species around. I mean, there were ape species in the past. There were also other, I should also say, there were other human species that existed and overlapped with each other. Even with modern humans or homo sapiens, it's, it's a very weird world we live in where we're the only thing like us. But also, yes. we're kind of cool. Like, there aren't a lot of species that do well in a bunch of different environments. Like, coyotes do well. Pigeons do really well. Humans do really well. Take something that's desert adapted and drop it in the Antarctic. They're probably not going to do all that well. But hey, right. we're in those two environments, so slap on a Canada goose and you're and you're rocking. <laughs> not the animal, but the coat. Oh, Apologies yeah. <laughs> to the animals if they're listening. So so sorry. The animals are better than the coat. <laughs> the Canada geese were not supposed to know that we named the clothing after the thing that goes into them. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so. We are extremely adaptable. This is great. I do want to pull us back to the chest, which is your speciality. Definitely. So in terms of what our chest evolved to do, it's a nice little thing. It definitely protects the organs inside of it. Yes. But what, is, what does the chest do? I, I know not every species on the planet has a chest like ours or even at all. We've got uh, animals or we've got insects with exoskeletons. Mm -hmm. how, did, how did our chest manage to turn into what it is? given that there yeah. wasn't a plan? That's that's a great question. So the the chest, one of the reasons why I love it is it's got so many different functions. Like there is a protective function to your chest. You've got your lungs, you've got your heart right there, not having a chest. Like imagine if we just had, like for a second, if we just had spines and then no bony rib cage, probably would 
not be a very good design. Like you get, <laughs> you know, hit by something and uh, oh, all right. Eamon's dead now. Now you're dead. Uh, yeah. If only he had ribs. But and, and then also like you see ribs being sort ribs and sternums being kind of co-opted for defense. Like uh one of my favorite little animals that we have in our museum here is uh the chronosaur. Chronosaur, so it's a big underwater type of thing. And apologies to paleontologists, I'm gonna butcher this. I'm I don't study them. But if you look at their ribs and if you look at their sternum, even a little bit their pelvis. It's kind of this unique structure, and it's encasing all those internal organs. And you uh-huh. think to yourself, why? And it's like, oh, they're big, they're hunting, and they're aquatic, so they can get attacked from all different directions. The rib cage has become extremely protective for those internal organs, or at least that's what it looks like. So, did the rib cage evolve in the water then? They did. Oh, well, the rib cage in general. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean that goes back to like bony fishes. Like rib cages are old, really old, oh, okay. and that's that's a bit beyond my wheelhouse again because we're talking like uh, we're talking some serious paleontology there. But yeah, it's not like we we came on to land and then there were rib cages. Like rib cages are pretty evolutionarily ancient. Perfect. But bring it all the way Love to it. humans. So there are all these different functions to it. Like there's protection. It's where your your forelimbs attach, right? So you've got your your clavicle uh, attaching your basically your arms to the body, and then it's attaching at the rib cage, right? So the question becomes, what is the function of the rib cage in humans, and how has it changed? And it definitely has changed. So if you look at a chimpanzee and you were strip it down, and we're just looking at the skeleton, you've got this very cone-shaped, funnel-shaped thorax. That's what we generally call it. A funnel shape. Like a coffee filter. Like a coffee filter. Exactly. Yeah. And then once you get to modern humans, Homo sapien, we've got what's called a barrel-shaped chest. So the shape of the chest has changed over the last seven million years. And there are a bunch of theories as to why. I mean, maybe it's beneficial to have the chest kind of come to a sharper point when you're dealing with climbing, but then you want to deal with throwing and you're repositioning the, the shoulder blades. There's a question of gut size as a theory. So uh, again, when we talk about a barrel-shaped chest, part of that is the lower portion of the chest is a little bit more pushed in. It's not as as wide open. So as you're as you're going from a chimp-like LCA eating a lower quality diet, needs a little bit more guts to higher quality diets in Homo, you reduce the gut size, and then of course you don't want to have like a pinched lower thorax when you've got big guts, and then when you have Smaller guts, you don't necessarily need a wide open lower thorax. So there's all these theories, right? I like big guts that I cannot lie. Exactly. Oh, actually, guts are cool. I mean, like expensive tissue hypothesis, and uh, there's always critiques of everything, but I love expensive that. Expensive like, tissue hypothesis. I love that. Big brains versus big guts because they both use a lot of energy, and one is more useful than the other at a given point in time. Anyway, getting all the way back to the chest, there's this question like, what is this function? And the reason why I got interested in it was I started thinking a lot more about ventilation because it had kind of been dismissed a little bit like, oh, are chests useful for lungs and breathing? Mm, probably not. The volumes aren't that different. The shape might not affect volume as much as we would expect. So it gets dismissed a little bit. And it's kind of been reexamined in recent years amongst various researchers, myself included. And we've gotten more interested in Well, shape is important, definitely. It's going to affect lung size. It's going to affect lung shape. It's going to affect all sorts of different things. But is shape function? And I would argue no. Shape is different than function. It can affect function, but there are other things that affect function as well. So, for example, uh, rib motion is really important. And that's really what my research has been about. It's been about rib motion 
and changes in the what we call the costovertebral joint, which is basically that joint where the ribs reach uh, attach onto the the spine. Mm-hmm. So how has that changed, and how do potentially changes in that structure of that joint affect breathing and rib motion? So it's interesting how you are focusing on the motion of the ribs. To me, of all of the different bones in the body that move, this one seems like the one that moves the least. Yeah, it doesn't like, move a tremendous amount. We've got amount. these super mobile arms. I've got like three degrees of range of motion in my hips and my shoulders. I've got levers in my elbows and knees and my ankles. And you're talking about this slight levering open mm-hmm. and close of the ribs attached to my spine. It, it's it's such a subtlety. It is very subtle. But uh, just think back to that big breath that we took at the beginning of this podcast. They do yeah. move, and the thing is, they aren't they aren't moving in every species. So, what? actually, uh, my yes, yeah. So my first uh, the, the the first thing that I became interested in was looking at that costovertebral joint, and you know, you look at it in different species, and you measure and and it's it's shaped differently in humans and other endurance adapted species so species that are running long distances over long periods of time they actually have more curved joints and when you take animals that are adapted for endurance running like for example dogs in this case and you put them on a treadmill and you put some humans on a treadmill and then you take some non-endurance adapted species like goats and you put them on a treadmill and you measure thoracic motion so how much the ribs are moving and how much the chest is expanding and contracting what you find is that dogs have a little bit of motion a good uh, some motion humans have a lot of motion relative and then goats are just not moving their ribs that much it basically actually falls off as they start taking bigger breaths so it's like no rib motion bigger breaths equates to less motion yes because they're using their diaphragm more right so when you want to take a big breath and this gets a little bit um gonna get a little bit physics-y for a second so apologies but I'm sure everybody remembers that phrase from like middle school chemistry, biology, nature of whores a vacuum. So let's say you want to inflate lungs or inflate something. You could do, you could like blow air into them, but that's not happening when we breathe. There isn't like some, well, what are those things they use with fire, like uh, fireplaces? Well, whatever. There's no like little pump that somebody's not like pushing air into you, like a little bike pump filling up your lungs. Nobody's pushing air in. It's called a bellows. A bellows. Thank you. Yes. So nobody's like walking in front of you, little bellows, inflating your lungs for you. What you're doing is you're generating negative pressure in your thoracic cavity. And then that pulls air in from the environment around you into your lungs. Mm -hmm. So that's what we call ventilation. That is like, that's that's the technical term for that. From the negative pressure of the diaphragm's motion. Exactly. So the diaphragm gets pulled down. It generates negative pressure in the thoracic cage. Air gets pulled into the lungs. Same deal to do that is you would increase the size of the chest by like expanding the rib cage, going to generate that negative pressure and it's going to pull air into the lungs. You can do it either or, or you can use both and increase the amount of air that's entering the lungs. So more diaphragmatic motion, the more the diaphragm gets pulled down, the more air that comes in, the more the rib cage expands, the more air gets drawn into the lungs, the bigger breath you take. So is there something in our body right now that's not moving, that if it was moving, it would improve our ventilation even more? Something that's not moving, but if it was, oh. uh, Like ghosts, you said their diaphragm moves, but their chest doesn't, so they're not as efficient as us. We have both, but what if there was like a third thing that's not moving and we don't even know how much ventilation we could be doing? I love this question. And um, I guess people can't see me right now because this is a podcast. I am like nerding out almost like, oh, that's (laughs) such a cool question. So 
Yeah. You take a, like, what we call, like, a visceral piston. So the movement of the organs going back and forth. Uh-huh. That would help us increase <laughs> ventilation more. So, like, if your, if your intestines were going up and down and, yeah. pu- and your liver was moving up and down because that's where your diaphragm's attaching, that would help you take bigger breaths, which is happening in quadrupedal or four-legged species. So, like, dogs, goats, rabbits, you name it. When they're running, their, t- their strides are causing them to take bigger breaths. They're expanding that ribcage as they as they move their legs away from each other. But also, as they stride, their organs are sloshing around. So that's going to help them inhale and exhale. Wow. Unfortunately, humans can't do that. We're bipeds. We're not taking strides in the same way. We're sort of bumping up and down with, as, uh-huh. we, as we trot across the landscape. So I would argue that we compensate for our lack of ability to use our organs to help us breathe by, you know, using the chest a little bit more. But yes, if you wanted to increase your breathing, you could figure out a way to get your organs to slosh around with you in time with your lungs filling in and filling and uh, inflating and deflating. But I'm trying to picture ah. what that would look like, because if we're bipedal, you're right. When we're <laughs> running forward, because we're upright, we have an up and down sloshing. Mm-hmm. But that's not really getting amplified by the forward motion. Exactly. Running. But because we don't have like a gallop. But what if there was some kind of, I mean, if we're getting off topic, but I'm, I guess I'm having fun in trying to imagine something that runs at like a 45 degree angle so that you get the sloshing somewhat. So we're <laughs> not like completely parallel to the ground, but we're also not perpendicular. I guess that's maybe what happens when like a sprinter takes off of, from a block. They're kind of really leaning oh. forward. Yeah. So sprinters aren't actually even going to breathe. Like, oh, uh, this is really cool. I mean, this might have something also to do with it. Because again, we're getting into like how complicated the chest is and how complicated breathing is. So a sprinter is actually going to be kind of similar to a weightlifter in the sense that they do a, they're going to take a, a big breath before they go. Because a sprinter is only going for like, I mean, it's faster than this, but let's say 12 seconds or let's say mm-hmm. it's, it's me sprinting. Like so we're going to, we're talking like 45 seconds to go that hundred meters, but uh, <laughs> okay. they're going to take a big breath and they're going to inflate their chest and then they're going to push off. And they're basically going to use that chest to pressurize and it's going to help their heart pump blood into their muscles because they don't really need to breathe for that really short burst. Same thing with weightlifters. They do that Valsalva maneuver. Uh, if you, if you look at somebody who's deadlifting at the Olympics before they before they lift up the uh, the weight bar, they take a really big breath, pressurize the thorax. It helps the heart push blood into the muscles, and then they boom, lift this really heavy thing, hold it, drop it, and then and then pant because you know it's really hard. So I I don't agree that runners don't breathe when they run their hundred meter dash. I've watched videos <laughs> of this, and I see them go <sighs> like they're they're, they're really, really quick fast in the back half. Maybe at the beginning, there's like a few paces where they're just like doing that big exhalation. But then they're doing, yeah, they're doing very small inhales and exhales. Oh, yeah. Well, I should say when I say they're not breathing, I don't mean to say that they aren't taking a breath for the entire thing. They are. What I mean to say is they're not like slowing down and really focusing on ventilation like you might see when uh, when somebody's running a marathon, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just not as necessary because it's such a slow burst. So it's not really about bringing in air and then having uh, like an aerobic metabolism. So right. that's that's a good point, actually. Well, I guess when like, they're not holding their breath for the entire time. But that's what I had maybe like interpreted wrongly from yes, what you're no. saying. So just, I wasn't clear that about up. that. <laughs> oh, oh, that. That's why we're here. That's why we're here for, for utmost clarity. <laughs> wow. So how does ventilation then in humans, like how, how does that affect or relate to the other systems in our body or like our overall health? That's how integral a- is it? Again, that's a really cool question. So 
Going back to that difference between dogs, goats, and uh, humans, when we look at that costal vertebral joint, we see these subtle differences, like a flattened joint architecture, like in goats, that doesn't permit a lot of rib motion. And guess what? We actually see that in chimpanzees. And we interpret that, and we argue, that that means that they were not using their chest to breathe very much. So rib motion isn't really happening in chimps. They're relying more on diaphragmatic motion to breathe. And then when we look at the fossil record, if we look at Australopiths, some fossils, and we measure what we can from the costal vertebral joint in these sort of fragmentary um, fossil specimens, mm -hmm. and I should say Australopiths sort of are that intermediate between like that those early bipeds and then that chimpanzee LCA. You go from early hominins to Australopiths, kind of walking around their bipeds, they're walking around, they're eating you know tubers, and then they kind of transition into genus homo which is us which is upright so lca that's that's last common ancestor right lca is last common ancestor yes Perfect. okay uh so we got our, our chimp like lca we get some early facultative bipeds in the early hominins we go to australopiths like lucy and big man so these guys are uh are, are more interested in walking around their bipeds but they still have some adaptations for climbing like long arms shorter legs so they're they're, they're walkers then you transition into Homo, where uh, genus Homo, which includes, you know, Homo erectus, Homo neanderthalensis, Homo heidelbergensis, Homo sapiens, us. And when we when we see that transition from Australopith to Homo, we see all these different adaptations for endurance running. So we see longer legs, shorter arms, arches in the feet, and then in the large gluteus maximus muscle, reorganization of the pelvis. And along with that, we also see that transition from that funnel-shaped chest the barrel-shaped chest, and in addition, based on our work, we see changes in the costal vertebral joint where the ribs are going to be pivoting from, and we go from a flattened joint architecture in osteopaths like chimpanzees to a modern human-like curved joint architecture, which would suggest that we start to see rib motion. So to answer your question, why does this matter? It's because it has to do with endurance activity. We're going from being like, you know, walkers, to long-distance runners and individuals who are living what we call more hunter-gatherer kind of lifestyle, which is, you know, very active. You have to spend a little bit of time hunting. You have to spend some time gathering. You have to breathe while you do that. You have increased energetic demand. All these things start influencing human evolution. And that's when we see the emergence of what we think is a more mobile chest. So it seems like if the human... Uh, chest cavity is going to evolve over time, perhaps it's actually going to maybe, this joint maybe is going to flatten out again as we have a decreased emphasis on mobility and need to run really fast. You mean like in, in like humans today kind of thing or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if, yeah. if we had to evolve that curvature uh, to be able to escape predators, for example, now that we don't have that issue anymore, as long as modern society in, like, let's say the Western world uh, stays as is and we live in these big cities where we're not being chased down every day, is it not possible that on long enough timelines it's going to flatten out? Or is there really nothing advantageous energetic, like energy-wise about a flatter, flatter joint? Like, are, are, are we losing out in any way? Is it costly to maintain this curvature? Well, that's an interesting question. Like, how do you, how do you test that? Uh, is it costly? So is a more mobile chest, more rib motion somehow detrimental in some way? Um, that's an interesting one. Like, uh, how, like I, it would be difficult to test. I mean, there are questions as to why don't all things just have mobile ribs? And we've argued that it has to do with how things are running. So if you're a quadruped and you're, you're using your forelimbs, your arms basically, 
to run, you don't really want your chest expanding and contracting and moving because it's going to destabilize you. Again, that's something that we argue. We haven't really tested that. Uh But uh, it sort of goes to what we measured in dogs where you see what we call pump handle motion. So the the, the sternum is getting pushed out when they breathe. Mm -hmm. The sides of the chest, though, aren't expanding and contracting. They aren't using what we call bucket handle motion in that regard. So they're not destabilizing their limbs, but they are breathing a little bit more. Wouldn't work with humans. But again, we're bipeds. We don't need to worry about that. Wow. I never thought about stability coming from the lack of motion in a rib mm-hmm. cage. Never yeah. would that have ever come across <laughs> my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it, gets, it gets complicated really tricky when you're talking about different systems and different, uh, different parts of the body integrating with one another. But as far as humans go... I would be very surprised if we were to ever have evolution uh, selection against this one because it's beneficial. Like it's not just we we don't just use it when we're when we're running. Like if you're being physically active, period. Like uh, if you're, I mean, if you're walking, you're going to use a little bit of thoracic motion. We found. Mm -hmm. I mean, even as we sit here, we're going to be using a little bit of chest motion. Mm -hmm. If you go for a nice long walk, if you decide to go, well, maybe bowling is not a good answer, but like let's say. Fill in the blank physical activity, playing frisbee, going for a nice run, rowing, any number of different things that we do, you're going to be using this because you want to increase your air intake. So I'd be really surprised if there was any selection against this because it's, it's not yep. tremendously costly. But also if if there isn't any selection against this, why change it? Like you, you right. tend to... If it ain't you, broke, don't fix it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Exactly. Or if it's fixed, don't break it. <laughs> <laughs> If, yes, if it is a very true. Motion, do not change that. You know, people always ask how the human eye evolved to be so complex when they're having conversations about like, you know, could evolution have produced something so wildly perfect? But after our discussion today, I'm realizing that the chest cavity should replace the eye in these conversations because it's so complex and it's really amazing that it's evolved to do what it does. And it's given us all of these adaptabilities. This extreme ventilation improves our health. It's quite a wondrous aspect of the body. I'm no longer surprised why somebody (laughs) would dedicate a good chunk of their life to figuring out what exactly is going on. I I was a little skeptical, but not anymore. (laughs) Like, who's this crazy person spending all his time looking at ribs? A nutcase, but... I know academics are all crazy people to a certain degree. (laughs) And even non-academics, we're all a little bit nuts, but maybe it's a little (laughs) more obvious when we have you expose yourself and all of your knowledge, which is plentiful today. So that's... This has been excellent. Thank you for sharing all the knowledge that you do have. Is there anything that we have not touched on that you really, really wanted to mention today oh. about your research or about the chest? A fun fact, something we did not get to. Well, we didn't get to high altitude adaptations. and Let's, uh, let's do it. Okay. I'm always down to talk more about this stuff. So we had this like basic understanding. Humans are different from other species. We see this emergence in the fossil record. So then we got really interested in testing this and like how do you test this? Go to environments that are low in oxygen where people have a lot more ventilatory demand. So that's exactly what we did. We went to Peru and we looked at an indigenous group of Peruvians, the Quechua, living at high altitude, but also individuals who'd been born at high altitude and moved to low altitude and individuals from the same population who'd been born and had only lived at low altitude in Lima. Mm -hmm. And what we found was as a population... Cashew individuals were moving their chests a lot more than uh, than our sea level Boston participants. So okay. even within the context of humans using their chests more to breathe than other animals, individuals who are adapted to high altitude, at least within this population, were using their chests even more, which makes sense. It's a, it's a good test of this theory that chests help us breathe, need to breathe more, use your chest more. 
And that's exactly what we found. We've also expanded this research and we're putting this paper out in the in the very, very near future because we've collected Ooh, all exciting. the data, analyzed it, written it. It's going to come out some point. Nice, nice. Uh, we looked at it in swimmers. And swimmers, again, if you take individuals as, as little kids and you have them swim, put them underwater, make them have to breathe a lot while they're exercising in an environment that doesn't have a lot of air or in an, an environment where they have to, you know, tilt their head up, take a big breath, go back underwater, continue working out. We find that swimmers, again, use a lot of chest motion when they're breathing. So these are just ways of testing whether or not our initial assumption is true. Increase the amount of air you need to breathe, and you start to see increases in how much the chest is responding to that, which is pretty fun. So now we have to just find a population of people who are swimming at really high altitudes. Oh, man, which wouldn't is that be fun? Be <laughs> because I guess the, the higher you go, the less, like, the fewer bodies of water you have, right? And it's cold. Like, and it, and it's cold, I mean, yeah. I, I love I love the mountains. Again, I'm from Denver. It's like mountains are the best thing ever. Yeah. It is chilly up there, and I'm not so sure I'd want to go swimming, especially mm-hmm. in the winter or whenever in the cold months. So, yeah. yeah, so that's a good test of it. It's also a lot of fun. I mean, doing field work is is one of the, the highlights of any anthropology grad student's career, I think. I love the field. And you get to interact with communities living in different environments than you. So uh, I'm going to put a little bit of a plug. If people want to sort of have an adventurous career, go to grad school, go into academia, go see the world, and then do some cool science while you're along the way and try and help different people. I think I think that's a great call to action for those who are <laughs> listening. I know a lot of our listeners are in their undergrad slash graduate careers, maybe looking to pivot, figure out what they want to do. I actually definitely agree with you in terms of the the field experience. My field experience is very different from yours. Mm-hmm. My field is the classroom because I'm in nice. a teaching degree. But still, it being in the classroom, applying things I'm learning in, in the courses I'm taking is awesome and even applying what I'm researching. So I agree, whether it's in biology, whether it's in education or anything in between, if you can get an opportunity to get some hands-on experience, applying your knowledge of the things you're learning about evolutionarily or pedagogically, I think it's all awesome. 100%. Could not agree more with with that statement. It's the best part about, well, just this whole experience. And I know you're a teacher too, so you definitely get that. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, I love teaching. Like again, highlight of grad school, you get to teach people. You get to pass on knowledge and usually you get it right sometimes you get it wrong i mean that's the nature of science but there's nothing quite like being in a classroom passing this on and hopefully inspiring the people who might be interested in what you're interested or are interested in sort of what you're interested in and then take it and run it even further like some of my best experiences have been with uh been with students i i very much see where you come from jeremy like teaching is just awesome it's wonderful I'm looking forward to uh, an illustrious career in that exact domain. <laughs> and once again, Eamon, it has been such a pleasure having you on this show. I knew it was going to be great, and it has been great. And <laughs> I want to definitely touch base down the line, because if I could bring you back on, especially in a panel, we'll bring Marielle back maybe. Who knows what the possibilities are? They are absolutely endless. So I'm going to keep your contact info. Oh, yeah, please. <laughs> Don't go too far. Yes. At any point in time, I'd be happy to be be involved. It's This has been really fun. And there's so much more to talk about. Like, oh, um, totally. My plug is, uh, I know we're, we're still recording. So my plug will be for uh, audiences who want to apply this, go and use it. Go outside, go for a run if you want, but just be physically active. That is so good for you. It's good for your mind. It's good for your body. It's good for your lungs. It's good for your ribs. And I would argue it's even a little bit good for your soul or... But. <laughs> oh, perfect way to end. Let's do one big breath together and call yep. it a day. Ready? All right. In. <sighs> I feel so much better now. Thank so you. So much rib motion. I love it. <laughs>
let's use all that motion and let's get out of here. Thank you so much, Eamon. Have an awesome rest of your day. My pleasure. And uh, thank you for having me. You are very welcome. Cheers. <laughs> thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Abstract Coal in the Future of Science. Always a pleasure creating and discussing and having you join me. If you like this episode or if you've got problems with the episode, regardless anything in between, I want to hear from you. You can shoot me an email, abstractcast at gmail.com. You can touch base on Instagram at abstractcast. And if you've got an Apple ID, a review would be so appreciated. If you've got ideas for future episodes or are a graduate student yourself, you should definitely hit up my inbox. Now it's 2022, so we're not releasing weekly episodes anymore, but we still will be releasing content this year, so keep tuning back in and have a great rest of the day.